We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Welcome back, everyone, to The Truth Perspective. Today on the program, we have Ilan Martin. Hello, everyone. And myself, Harrison Cayley. And we are pleased to be joined by Mike Springman. Um, Mike is the author of the book, Visas for Al-Qaeda, CIA Handouts That Rocked the World. Now, Mike served in the United States government as a diplomat with the State Department's Foreign Service, and he had postings in Germany, India, and Saudi Arabia, the last being um, quite an interesting posting, as we'll find out. He eventually left the Federal Service and currently practices law in the Washington, D.C. area. So first of all, Mike, thanks for joining us, and we're really excited to talk to you. Well, I'm pleased to be invited to speak to your listeners. I uh, really enjoy this, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Great. To start out with, maybe you could just give us some background on what you actually did and how you got to Saudi Arabia. How about we start there? Sure. Okay. Um, back in the midst of time, I'd worked for the Commerce Department's uh, International Trade Administration and had gotten an assignment abroad as a um, commercial officer in what they called the State Commerce Exchange Program, a, a program that provided uh, Washington assignments in the Commerce Department for State Department officers who really needed to be in Washington but couldn't find a berth at the State Department. And in return, State would give them uh, the uh, would make available to Commerce Department staff um, a position as a commercial officer abroad in a consulate or an embassy somewhere. Uh, and I was later in the, uh, the State Commerce, uh, or I'm sorry, the um, the Foreign Commercial Service when the commercial function was taken away from the State Department. And this got me trips to uh, Germany and to India as commercial attaché in uh, New Delhi. But I really always wanted to be in the real Foreign Service and uh, could never uh, pass the oral exam, which was the real exam. I could uh, get past the, the written exam with no trouble and did it a number of times. Uh, but uh, eventually I got... Uh, into the State Department, and as a reward, they sent me to Saudi Arabia. And that was a kind of a strange place. It was, um, well, Saudi Arabia was a strange country, but I think the American uh, Consulate General in Palestine Road was an even stranger place. I had been told before I went out to Saudi Arabia that I was going to be assigned to the embassy in what was then East Berlin, and uh, was told that... Uh, you know, you don't sell your house, but uh, generally what the European Bureau wants, the European Bureau gets because it's primus inter pares. It, uh, it has great influence in the State Department. Well, next thing I knew, I was in the uh, uh, the class for new foreign service officers, and they were handing out uh, assignment orders and uh, the flag of the country to which you're going to be assigned, and they handed me the green flag of Saudi Arabia. Mm. Well, I 
wanted to find out more about the place and wrote three letters to my predecessor, Greta Holtz, who uh, frankly never answered. And I thought this was really odd. I had asked relatively straightforward, simple questions like, what did you wish you knew before you got there? Uh, what's the job like? Uh, tell me uh, some of the issues you have to deal with and so forth. Dead silence. And people had said, well, you know, why don't you call them? And I said, well, you know, there's a eight-hour time difference or so, and it's kind of hard to do it. So I said, well, I'll go. It should be interesting. And uh, ended up there, and I was welcomed with open arms. I had previously been told by the American ambassador at the time, Walter Cutler, in what I thought was going to be a five-minute hello and goodbye session, uh, that Greta Holtz was a troublemaker and had created all kinds of problems for the embassy in Riyadh. She was refusing visas to all of these uh, rich Saudi women who couldn't travel with an entourage of hairdressers and seamstresses and other factotums. And I thought this is really strange. He's telling me something for 45 minutes, but I couldn't figure out what it was he was telling me. And I asked the... Uh, uh, the desk officer for the, who uh, is essentially uh, representing the embassy and the mission in Saudi Arabia to the State Department of Washington, D.C., keeping track of what's going on and interpreting what's happening in Saudi Arabia to the uh, officials of the department in Washington. Uh, he said, well, Cutler, he's just a queer duck. So I'm there in Jeddah. And I'm welcome with open arms. Oh, Greta Holtz, she was such a troublemaker. She was so hard to get along with. She did all these problems, uh, and we just couldn't uh, handle her. And I said, oh, this girl's going to make my career. Well, after a while, I began getting requests for visas. Uh, you know, it's your decision. You're the, the consular officer in charge of the visa section. But we really want to get this guy into the country. He's one of our really good contacts. And they were sort of straightforward people at the time. And I said, sure. Then afterwards, we got strange applicants, the king's barber's servant. And I said, no. And I got an argument. And then there was a guy... In fact, two guys uh, from, I think, Pakistan who were going on a trade mission to the United States sponsored by the Commerce Department. And these guys couldn't name the trade show they were going to and couldn't tell me what city was being held in. And I refused them. Mm -hmm. And well, within a half an hour uh, or so, maybe an hour, I get a call from um, Paul Arvid Tveit, T-V-E-I-T, uh, who was a... Uh, CIA clandestine service officer hidden in the, the commercial section. And he demanded visas for these guys. And I said, no, the Immigration and Nationality Act and the State Department's own regulations say if you have any questions about any visa applicant, he doesn't get the visa. Uh, the burden of proof is on the applicant, and every applicant is to be considered an intending immigrant unless and until he can prove otherwise. And these guys can't do it. And then an hour, uh, I get a call from the um, head of the consular section, Justice given name Stevens, who says, I'm issuing these visas. And I never got an explanation. Then there was a, um, a Sudanese fellow who was a refugee from the Sudan and who um, was a unemployed person in Saudi Arabia. And uh, Karen uh, Sasahara 
the political officer wanted a visa for him. And I said, well, no, he, what's to prevent him from staying in the United States? You know, he has no ties in Saudi Arabia or in the Sudan that are going to bring him back home. And I said, no, no, and no. And the next thing, uh, she goes to Justice Stevens and uh, he gets the visa. And when I asked Justice later on why, he said national security, but never went further. Hmm. Well, I don't think Karen really worked for the Department of State. I think that uh, she worked for another agency and she's currently deputy chief of mission and likely station chief in Sana'a in Yemen and is probably coordinating uh, American support for the Saudi attacks on that country. Mike, just a, a couple quick questions about um, some of the things that you've just mentioned, some details. Sure. First of all, I'm just curious about the the kind of day-to-day routine um, that you were going through and that that was part of your position there. So when you're talking to um, – when you receive these visa applications, um, do, they inv- do they involve um, like a one-on-one interview? Is it all via paper? Um, and do you have – do these – like do, did many of these people speak English or did you have an interpreter? Well, uh, one, generally except Saudis, uh, we required a personal appearance of the visa applicant in front of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if the Saudis had problems in their paperwork, I would demand that they come in and see me personally. Um, as to uh, what they what I did daily was uh, people would come in. There would be a tremendous line when we opened up at 8.30 in the morning. And I had about two minutes to decide whether to issue or refuse the visa. Hmm. And by and large, uh, I got to where I could sit at the window and pick out people in line who I knew I was going to refuse because of the way they stood, the way they dressed, uh, the passport that they carried, mm-hmm. and so forth. And um, the uh, the visa applicants generally talk themselves out of getting the visa. Yeah. They didn't know where they were going. They had no real job. Uh, they weren't uh, uh, somebody who was a philosopher king, let's say, uh, a good person with a good job and uh, a business or a family and then a property to come home to. They were basically sketchy people who were clerks in a grocery store, for example. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, you you had uh, further questions? Oh, just um, just the, the language issue. I was just wondering if you oh, had oh, translators. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it depends. They generally spoke pretty good English or at least passable English. Uh, I try Arabic. They did a bad job of teaching it to me. <laughs> and uh, I had worked out a basic visa interview in Arabic. And if the line wasn't too long and I had a guy that didn't speak very good English, I'd try Arabic on him. And on people that spoke absolutely no English, uh, I'd ask one of my three-man staff, who all spoke Arabic uh, fluently, to uh, translate for me. Okay, so basically you've got this, every day you've got this long line of applicants, and you have very little time to devote to each one. But, um, you know, after getting used to your job, you can pretty much spot the, the problems right away, either sure. just by looking at the guy or looking at their, at their application, and there are certain yeah. red flags that come up. Exactly. So it sounds like um, um, like what you've kind of been alluding to is that you had that first conversation with the, the ambassador and, who, who mentioned the, the problems with, uh, was it Greta Holtz? Yeah, and right. So it sounds like he was basically telling you in code 
or kind of subtle language that you've, you've basically just got to rubber stamp these people and <laughs> not, not really pay attention. Oh, you know, is that kind of the... Well, I think that's what he was trying to convey, but he did a really bad job of doing it. He yeah. kept talking about seamstresses and rich Saudi women, <laughs> and I didn't get any of them. I, I got uh, uh, characters like the, the unemployed Sudanese, and uh, if I didn't refuse these characters, uh, it was my name on the visa plate, Mm-hmm. And they could come after me for not doing my job. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike, oh. I had a question for you. Sure. Uh, you spoke in your book of um, being surrounded by CIA and NSA employees, yeah. basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you find that a little strange or unusual, or, or was it just a kind of wait and see? You know, why are these guys here? Um, Anyway, if you can speak a little bit about the the, the context of that. Yeah, I found it very, very strange. I mean, the State Department opens its doors to lots of people from the intelligence services. I mean, in fact, too many at at times, I think. I mean, no other country in the world has so many uh, CAA or NSA officials uh, working in their foreign ministry as does the United States. And in Jeddah, for example... um, they uh, were roughly just about everybody in the consulate, maybe three people, including myself, whom I knew for a certainty to have no ties, either professional or familial, uh, being married to one of the spooks, for example, mm-hmm. uh, was was basically the, uh, the way the thing went. I mean, there were some 20 people, and out of the 20, there were three people that I knew for a certainty uh, to work for the State Department. And everybody else worked for the NSA. We had a a CIA Arabic interpreter working for the NSA signals intelligence branch in the back room in the, uh, uh, the chancery building. Um, Greta Holtz, who was such a troublemaker, uh, is now American ambassador Oman, and she had worked for defense intelligence while at the Pentagon before she became a member of the state department. If in fact she ever became one. Um, when I was in Stuttgart, for example, um, First time I was there in the the late 70s, um, the only intelligence people in the consulate were were something called the Lot Liaison Officer, which was basically Army Intelligence, uh, whose assignment was to look at the rear areas of the huge American Army presence in uh, Germany, in in our consulate district, Baden-Württemberg, in the southwest. Uh, But uh, everybody else worked for the State Department. And uh, when I came back a second time, suddenly I had some questions about who it was that uh, was working there. My predecessor had uh, apparently worked for the CIA mm-hmm. as uh, the position was political economic officer. And uh, the uh, fellow in communications, his wife worked for the agency and he wanted to retire from state and go to work for the CIA because the pay was better. So it's a, a really amazing uh, but uh, Jetta was uh, in- incredible with the number of spooks working there. And what were the what years were you stationed there? I was in Jetta between 1987 and 1989. Okay, so late 80s. Yeah, and this was towards the end, I guess, of the war in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I was out of the State Department, I actually had been fired, essentially, uh, that I learned from Joe Trento, the journalist, that what they were doing was with all these questionable and, and sketchy people uh, they were sending to me for visas were recruits for the Mujahideen to fight the Soviets in Afghanistan. 
Mm-hmm. Now, I asked Joe, I said, well, Joe, why didn't they just tell me? I mean, at the time, I was stupid enough probably to have uh, said, okay, uh, I'll go along with that. We work for the same government and we're out to get the godless communists, you know. And uh, he said, well, you know, they want plausible deniability. If something happens, something screws up, it's the consular officer's fault, not their fault. And so you were there for, what, two or three years? Oh, uh, not quite two years. Not quite two years. I, mean, I had the opportunity to extend for another six months, but I decided with all the uh, uh, the crap I was getting from the Consul General, Jay Frayers, who is now dead, uh, that um, I didn't need this. I didn't want to put up him demanding visas for these people and then threatening to uh, get me out of the Foreign Service. And uh, apparently it was well known. Uh, I started hearing things like uh, where there was an inspection team coming out and uh, the State Department has an inspection corps that goes around to consulates and embassies every couple of years to check on whether they're following regulations, are there issues of law or something that, that they need to be addressed, uh, what's the morale like, how competent are the staff, and so forth. And I was told by a friend who very likely had ties to uh, the, the American Intelligence Services that, um, you know, uh, the inspectors are coming, and I, I want to tell you that if you say one word to them about the problems you're having with visas, or there was another issue of uh, alcohol sales, money seemed to disappear, and nobody was accountable for it, uh, vast quantities of liquor were sold uh, both to diplomats' staff and to the mobile corporation's boat and somehow passed on to other people who had connections. Uh, you talk about that and, uh, you know, you're going to get fired. Mm-hmm. And the inspector who came in to talk to me, uh, Joseph P. O'Neill Jr., who is also now dead, uh comes in and says, uh, I understand there's some issues with alcohol and visas. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you about that. I've been told if I do, I'll lose my job. <laughs> and he went on and on and on. He always says, it's like a priest. It's, it's, it's confidential. I can't be made to talk. This is between me and you. And I have to file a report and you won't be mentioned. Uh, and on and on and on. And after about an hour, he finally wore me down in the process telling me some things I, I hadn't known myself. Um, so I said, yeah, I confirmed pretty much everything that you said. And the next thing I knew, Frayers went ballistic, and uh, he was going to ensure that I wasn't going to work for the State Department anymore. But you did continue working for the State Department for a little bit after that, did you? For another assignment in uh, in Germany, again in right. Stuttgart, for a couple of years. And then I was reassigned to Washington to the Bureau of Intelligence and Research for a few months, and then they told me, I'm sorry, uh, we're not going to renew your appointment. You're, uh, you're unemployed, fellow. Mm. So, uh, Michael, earlier you mentioned that it wasn't until after you left that you were informed that you were basically giving these visas uh, to people who were going to join the Mujahideen. Right. Um, and I guess up until that time, you just thought, um, gee, this is a really dysfunctional kind of corrupt uh, place here that, that's yeah, exactly. in a bad place. And yeah, and I, I was hearing stories that uh, the uh, people were paying bribes uh, of some 2000 American dollars to get a visa. And I said, well, who are they paying it to? Again, this is from the guy, uh, um, Nestor Martin, who I thought had ties to the agency. 
And he said, well, you know, don't ask me. What am I, your own private CIA? Look to who needs the money at the consulate. And I, I, I reported this to uh, diplomatic security in Riyadh. And we had a series of meetings and uh, nothing ever came of it. Mm-hmm. And when I was in Washington at the Bureau of Intelligence Research and they told me they were going to fire me, I said I had nothing to lose. And I went to the inspector general's office. I went to what was then the government accounting office and is now called the government accountability office, a, a, a congressional watchdog on the efficiency of the government. And I went to the Justice Department and the Federal Bureau of Investigation and was basically ignored. Uh, the inspector general's office said, well, you just had a, a personality conflict with Jay Freres. <laughs> and I said, no, that's not the case, fellow. Well, if we look if we look back at it, um, like you were talking about your perspective at the time, like if they would have just told you, you you might have gone along with it, you know, as a good patriotic yeah. American. Right. And if if we look back at it, kind of with uh, with hindsight, um, it's like okay, so we know that the the CIA and the Americans were basically setting up and funding the Mujahideen for the the war in Afghanistan, and so this was a this was just a part of it. So what I want to get into is. Um, is it more than that, and why is it still important um, not only today but for the last thirty years? You know, since the time that you were doing this, and for all that time afterwards. Well, I had initially thought that after I started speaking out and complaining to various uh, public agencies and writing a couple of articles, I got published, like uh, one in Covert Action Quarterly, which is defunct thanks to its publisher. Um, I thought this whole thing had stopped. And then as the American involvement got deeper into the Middle East, when they got into um, into Iraq and uh, then they moved into Libya and, and Saudi Arabia, I'm sorry, Syria, I thought, well, wait a minute, this is still going on. And I wondered if they haven't created a cadre of these people mm-hmm. to uh, take down governments the Americans didn't like. And then I started doing some research and talking to people. And uh, found out that, yeah, they practiced on Yugoslavia taking the place apart, using Osama bin Laden and some 5,000 Saudis plus lots of other people from all over the uh, the world. And then they uh, took these same people, sent them into Iraq, and then Libya and Syria. And it's it was the, the beginning of al-Qaeda in, in, in Yugoslavia. But I realized that somewhere along the way, either at the end of the Afghan war or maybe before or after, I've never been able to to ascertain what or when, uh, they said, hey, we've got a cadre of guys who are good at shooting things down and blowing things up. Let's use them. And I tell people it's maybe not as organized and uh, controlled as the United States Marine Corps, but you've got a lot of people who are essentially the the most vicious, fanatical types of uh, people the American government can locate. And they're trained. They were trained originally in the United States, in a lot of cases in the eastern part of the country at uh, military bases in North Carolina. And they were sent back overseas. And I gather now uh, these people are being trained in Jordan and in Turkey. Mm-hmm. And it's um, it's astonishing. And uh, I, I came across um, Richard Dreyfuss' book, The Devil's Game. And in it, he talks about how the United States had not been really deeply involved in the Middle East, except on an ad hoc basis, where uh, we tried to get rid of uh, uh, 
Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt, uh, or tried to overthrow the Syrian government a couple of times, but it was basically on an ad hoc, one-off basis. Uh, and he said, now after uh, uh, Afghanistan and September 11th, 2001, uh, the United States is deeply involved in a region it had no interest in before, and it's doing its best to get a hold of bases and get governments on its side. And uh, I said, yeah, and then uh, to get rid of the governments that are not on its side, it, it sends its, its shock troops in uh, to take care of them. I mean, look at uh, Iraq, for example. Uh, Edmund Garib, the uh, professor who is widely known expert on uh, Iraq and uh, the Kurds, uh, and the Arab world in general, I guess, he, he's, he's written that there was no Al-Qaeda in Iraq until the American invasion. Yeah. And uh, uh, I'm trying to think the, uh, the fellow John Schindler, who was something of a right-wing guy who used to teach at the Naval War College in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, he wrote in his book, Unholy Terror, that uh, Al-Qaeda in Yugoslavia became a, a worldwide organized force for uh, terrorism uh, as a result of uh, American support. I mean, NATO and the American government and the German government uh, provided them with information, intelligence, if you will, uh, supplies, and, and so forth. Uh, the Americans at one point uh, had worked with the Germans to put uh, weapons in the uh, cartons of food being delivered supposedly to the refugees in the country. So it was, uh, uh, they've got this and it's going on. And after Syria, who knows where they're going to go? Yeah. Well, I, I just wanted to read a uh, one little paragraph from your book in the section on the Balkans because, um, well, I'm fairly young and Canadian and from what, just from the public, you know, the exposure in the media to what was going on, um, like I was in high school when 9-11 happened. And so after that, it took me a kind of a while to get up to speed on what was actually going on in the world. And I remember, first of all, um, you know, finding out about 9-11, about what happened and researching it. And then that kind of led to looking back at the history before then. And, you know, I realize now that I had no no idea even that there was this connection between, let's say, you know, Al-Qaeda and what was going on in the Balkans and Yugoslavia. And just to, to speak to that, there, there's an interesting quote that, that uh, from your book that kind of struck me, and I, I wasn't aware of this, but um, bin, Laden, bin Laden's deputy, Ayman al-Zawahiri, was often in Bosnia, as was bin Laden himself, the latter using a Bosnian passport. Uh, Renata Flotau uh, the German news magazine uh, Der Spiegel's Balkan correspondent saw Bin Laden there in 1994 with the Mujahideen, who claimed they were quote humanitarian aid workers. Now this this just struck me while looking through your your book again uh, before the interview, because there's just a whole lot of coincidence when you when you look at all these things and how history has been repeating itself for the past 30 years. Because um, lately I've been following, and uh, we all have at uh, SOT.net, what's going on in Syria. And maybe we can get into that. Uh, we'll kind of jump over the, the timeline a bit. Uh, we'll sure. go right to the present. But in, in Syria right now, we've got this situation where there is an admitted you know, Al-Qaeda 
affiliate group, Al-Nusra, who are now called Jabat, what, what? Uh, Al-Sham, maybe? Al-Sham, Jabat Fatah Al-Sham, I think their new name is. And so this is, a, everyone acknowledges that this is a, a terrorist organization, and, you know, along with ISIS, both of whom are in Syria at the moment. And so we've had this whole rigmarole back and forth with uh, Russia and the United States, where Russia has gone in and, you know, started this air campaign, bombing all kinds of targets. And like the Russians claim, of course, that these are these are terrorist targets. This is al-Nusra, basically. And the Americans say, oh, no, you're not bombing any of the any al-Nusra targets or Daesh targets. You're, you're, you're only bombing basically civilians and the so-called moderate rebels. So when we look at these moderate rebels, the U.S. is still, 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 still harvest when it's becoming increasingly clear, especially in the past two weeks, even though it was obvious pretty much for the whole duration of the war, that these moderates are not moderate and they are direct affiliates themselves or direct members of al-Nusra. They basically mm-hmm. are al-Qaeda. Yeah. So, so with these latest ceasefire agreements, we've had the U.S. Um, basically, if you just strip down the language that they're actually using in public and look at the actions and what, the, what their um, goals basically set out to accomplish, the U.S. wants a ceasefire for al-Qaeda in Syria. And they don't they, they say they want to separate these moderates from the extremists, but they can't do so. And so because they can't do so, they say, oh, well, then, you sh- then no one should be able to bomb al-Nusra because they'll bomb our guys who are basically embedded with al-Nusra. And it's just, yeah. it's, it's mind-boggling when you think about it, especially yeah. given the fact that on 9-11, allegedly, al-Qaeda w- were the ones to attack the United States. That was the mm. old Al Qaeda. That was the old Al Qaeda. <laughs> <laughs> but well, maybe before we just discuss Syria a bit more, I mentioned nine eleven. Um, I believe there's a connection to to nine eleven in your book um, relating to this visa issue. Um, mm-hmm. Can you can you speak about that for a bit? Yeah, well, there's a couple of connections. Uh, one, uh, my successor several times removed, Shana Stanger, um, had issued visas to 11 of the 15 Saudi alleged hijackers in Saudi Arabia. There were some 19, and 15 of the 19 got their visas to come to the United States in Saudi Arabia. And 11 of the 15 got there from Shana Steinger in Jeddah. Mm-hmm. And uh, the again, this guy, uh, John Schindler, in his book on holy terror, names a number of people uh, who had fought in Yugoslavia, who had fought for al-Qaeda, and who got training in Afghanistan and has then connected them uh, to planning or taking out or carrying out the September 11th attacks. Hmm. So I, I, I think that, you know, that they, you, you can draw parallels there. Yeah. And when you when you look at it from the the kind of official government narrative, it looks like. um well, not even necessarily the government narrative, but just the way kind of history has played out. You've had the U.S. Um, intelligence agencies and government basically supporting al-Qaeda openly, in a sense, if first in Afghanistan and then um, then the Balkans. And then at 9-11, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, no, these aren't our guys. And then after 9-11, it's almost like, oh, these are our guys again. Yeah, and I mean, you don't have to be crazy 
to work for the American government, but it helps. <laughs> well, while we're sort of on that topic of um, 9-11, uh, what is your take on the 28 pages and the information contained in there, Mike? Do you feel that uh, that the, the threat of... Um, of divulging more information about Saudi Arabia's uh, possible participa- participation in, uh, in 9-11 was a kind of um, threat that the U.S. was holding over Saudi Arabia for the purposes of leverage? Or uh, what, what can you say is involved in all of that? Okay. Well, I wouldn't say it was leverage of any kind. I, I think that uh, the Americans and the Saudis worked very close together in, in supporting terrorism. Uh, the Saudis paid for it, and uh, the Americans uh, worked to implement it. Uh, in the case of the 28 pages, you know, if they were, in fact, the real pages that existed and were not rewritten, um, uh, it still shows the Saudis, despite the blacked-out sections on almost every one of the 28 pages, sometimes very substantially blacked-out, uh, it names Saudi government officials like Prince Bandar Abdulaziz bin Sultan, a uh, long-term ambassador to the United States and former head of their intelligence service, as being deeply involved in this. And uh, he, he and his wife uh, sent a good bit of money off to uh, these various organizations. Uh, he worked behind the scenes, uh, from what I can see in the pages, to uh, help with other issues uh, on terrorism. The 28 pages name a number of uh, Saudi intelligence officers uh, who were involved with helping or supporting or uh, even finding places to live for some of the hijackers. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it shows the Saudis are deeply involved in this. Uh, they were deeply involved in the original attacks in Afghanistan. Uh, they worked with the uh, inter-services intelligence in, in Pakistan to uh, – organize and carry this stuff out. The, well, getting back to Syria, maybe. Um, uh-huh. the, re- the reason I read that quote um, from the book is that these guys, you know, basically Bin Laden and Zawahiri, and they're the guys kind of working with them, pass themselves off as humanitarian aid workers. And just, I mean, again, coincidentally, we have the same thing going on in Syria where we have these groups like the the White Helmets in Syria mm, yeah. who are passing themselves off as humanitarian workers while, and again, this is just mind-boggling because you've got um, just countless, countless uh, endless praise in the Western media and from Western governments about these guys. They were slated, uh, they were nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Thankfully, they didn't win. <laughs> and And yet when you look online you can find dozens of videos and pictures of these guys in one picture they're holding rifles in another they've got their white helmets on they are um, basically you can see videos of al-Nusra executing people on the streets and then white helmets come to clean up the operation you've got videos of of al-Nusra or white helmets basically embedded with these various groups um, all you know all weaponed up and going around, um, you know, praising suicide bombers. It's just, there's, there's no way of looking at these guys and not coming to the conclusion that, well, you know, they're, they're Al-Nusra's humanitarian wing, basically. Yeah, um, I agree with that. Uh, I was watching RT a couple of times this week, and they've been kind enough to interview me several times. 
But they had a couple of programs where they examined these white helmets uh, through the eyes of a couple of different journalists. And they, they said pretty much just what you did, that, uh, hey, these guys have ties, financial, political, you name it, to some of the nastier types running around Syria, blowing people up and uh, shooting people down. And they're not the uh, the kind of people you want to give a Nobel Peace Prize to. So that's how far we've come, I guess, since the since the 80s. Um, <laughs> is that now we're we're trying to give peace Nobel Peace Prize Nobel Peace Prizes to um, Al Qaeda? Yeah, well, remember Barry Obama, the American president, got the Nobel Peace Prize in his first year in office, and he hasn't done anything since except uh, have more wars running than the Bush crime syndicate did. Mm-hmm. I think he's four, five, six. I, I've lost count. <laughs> And yeah. what's happening Great. now is that uh, the Americans are driving people out of the Middle East and elsewhere into Europe. Uh, it, it weakens the countries that have uh, been losing populations, and they're dumping these people into the middle of Europe where they have no cultural ties whatsoever, no religious ties whatsoever. And you now have uh, street battles between uh, the Europeans and these people that have sort of been dumped into the center of the continent, uh, going back really to last year when they really started to flood in, you had uh, uh, rapes and and robberies all through Germany after uh, the Chancellor Merkel invited a million people into the country. And it it kind of fits in with what I've seen in this book uh, by Kelly Greenhill, Weapons of Mass uh, uh, Migration. And the idea is that you drive people out of a country to weaken it and put it into a country to uh, divide it. And uh, I think this is the next phase in, in what the Americans and their uh, repressive and repulsive allies in the region are doing. Yeah. Um, so you have this experience, basically, just getting back to, um, you know, leaving the leaving your job in uh, – Jeddah and, uh, and eventually going into private practice, Michael. And, um, and so you come across some books, you begin to see patterns. Um, you, you discover that, uh, that you know, the NATO U.S. Uh, attack on Libya a few years ago is part and parcel of things that you were witnessing firsthand. You were part of this, um, you were an unwitting part of this infrastructure yeah. Of of moving uh, terrorists, basically, uh, mm-hmm. get, getting them uh, positioned, coming to the U.S. to get training from Green Berets, uh, you know, going to certain other places around the world where they were needed as employees of the CIA and, and what have you. And so um, at, at what point did you say, my God, uh, I, I have to start? writing about it from my own perspective here, having having seen what I saw? Well, I started writing articles uh, and getting them published in Op-Ed News and uh, Foreign Policy Journal, for example. Um, about the time my first Freedom of Information Act lawsuit was shut down as a threat to national security, I thought I would be able to find out what really was going on and why I had been fired and maybe I could get back into the State Department with enough leverage. And I found out that that was an impossibility. The government was going to uh, close ranks against me. 
And as time went by and I was speaking out and writing still more articles, um, I decided that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll go and ask for what I should have asked the first time around, the visa application forms that uh, I had refused, that the Consul General Jay Ferris insisted I issue. And when I was in Jeddah, I had asked my staff to start uh, shredding some of these old visa application forms that were in the filing cabinets that filled one room and spilled over into another. And, you know, they went back 10, 15 years maybe. And uh, they said, Mike, we can do two things. We can shred this stuff or we can deal with the 100 or 200 people a day on average that are coming in for visas. What do you want us to do? And I said, yeah, we deal with the visas. So I filed a Freedom of Information Act request for these applications. And uh, the government uh, delays and delays and uh, wouldn't speed things up. Uh, said there was no public interest in my finding out about this and so on and so forth. And after two years, I ended up filing a lawsuit. And State Department then denied that these documents existed. They're shredded every year. And I filed an application with the U.S. District Court for D.C. and said, uh, no, uh, they aren't shredded every year and listed what I just told you about my three-man staff. And uh, the, the judge at the time, Reggie Walton, who was on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act Court, the secret court the government has, that essentially legitimizes black jet, black bag jobs, so government-sponsored burglary. Uh, he said, oh, State Department's right. You haven't exhausted all of your uh, administrative remedies. Uh, I'm going to uh, deny the lawsuit and shut it down. And at that point, I said, all right, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to put everything in it that I know or that I personally experienced that I can possibly research, and I'm going to name names. In fact, I had one uh, journalist in D.C. tell me, uh, you've written a very dangerous book. It does name names. And I list people in the CIA and people in the State Department who were involved in this stuff and would love to have more names. But uh, in the case of the recruitment, for example, for the, uh, the Mujahideen, there were 52 recruiting offices in the United States, one of which was in Washington, D.C. But I've never been able to track them down as to where they were and, and who knows where they were and that sort of thing. It, it's uh, basically a... Uh, a clam job. Nobody uh, says anything more than a clam does. Could, could you just explain what a recruitment office is? Um, 52 offices are, what they do? Sure. Well, what it was is um, there was the um, uh, Osama bin Laden's mentor, um, uh, Sheikh Abdullah, and he had written in, in uh, a publication for the Mujahideen, that we can't go for help to poor Muslim countries uh, like the Sudan or, or maybe Yemen. Uh, we need to go where the money is, and that's the United States. We have a lot of Arabs. We have a lot of Muslims in the United States. And let's go to them and ask them to, one, collect money for us, and two, to find us fighters that are willing to be trained uh, by us and by our affiliates uh, to go and fight the, the godless communists in uh, Afghanistan. There was also a, a center in Brooklyn, right? Yeah, uh, that was at the Al Kifa Mosque, uh, or the uh, what was it, the, the Al Frug Center, mm-hmm. on what was it, Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn. <laughs> I used to live not far from there. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, okay, so 
uh, you were actually in the process of um, uh, when I asked you that, uh, explaining this this kind of uh, reaction you had. It sounds mm-hmm. a bit like um, righteous anger and outrage at uh, at being told that uh, you know you had no legal recourse. They weren't going to uh, respond to your uh, freedom of information request. Right. Uh, you you wrote a few articles and you and you wrote your book and and name names. Yeah. And, and um, it's, it's mm-hmm. getting me attention. I mean, I, I, I sell the book all over the world. Uh, there's a German language edition in train. They're working on the translation now. And uh, I've had contacts from people in Spain and France who want to have the, lang- the book translated there as well. Uh, I've struck out with the Arabs. They want me to pay them $6,000 to translate it. <laughs> uh, and the, that's generally not the way it works elsewhere in the world. Um, but it's gotten me invitations to speak all over the place. I uh, have been invited to New York a couple of times to uh, speak at the Left Forum this past spring. Uh, I was up there in September the 10th and the 11th of this year uh, to speak at Justice and Focus uh, 9-11-2016. Uh, I have been invited up there last September uh, and very kindly have been asked to speak for five minutes about the uh, the book. So, uh, you know, I guess the word is getting out there. I've uh, been on TV stations in Beirut, Lebanon uh, by uh, telephone. I've uh, uh, talked to uh, uh, press TV uh, in telephone interviews and in in one Skype interview, and RT occasionally calls me. So uh, they're they're helping me spread the word, and I've I've got something like reputation, I guess, as an expert on terrorism, at least the American government-sponsored variety. Well, that's great, and I hope that our listeners check it out, too. Um, what's the preferred way of getting your book, Mike? Um, it's available on Amazon. If they're interested in reading three really good reviews by three really good journalists, uh, Wayne Madsen, uh, Barry Zwicker, who's a Canadian, and uh, Andrew Craig, who's here also in Washington, D.C., uh, they can go to the website, www.michaelspringman.com, and they have all three uh, reviews of the book there, plus a link to Amazon where they can buy the book either in print or as an ebook. Great. And I just, yeah. <laughs> I, I was just that. whispering to Harrison <laughs> that I had at, at least one more question, but go ahead, Harrison. Sure. Did you want to? No, yeah, I've got a couple questions too. Um, the first thing I just wanted to get into before we end the show is um, a question I have, and I just want to hear your thoughts on it, Mike. Um, mm-hmm. Because looking at the the dynamics of what was going on um, in the 80s to now, um, it sounds like in the 80s there was a very heavy, let's say, kind of like um, American involvement. And by that, I mean like on American soil, where there were these recruitment centers, there was training going on, there was fundraising, all this stuff going on uh, in the, actually in the United States. Now, it looks like nowadays um, that has changed slightly. At least that's how it appears uh, from the surface. It looks like that has kind of um, gone overseas in a sense where now we have this kind of stuff happening in countries like um, like Libya and uh, Saudi Arabia and Turkey. And so there seems to be um, – that's where the, it seems to me that the kind of on-the-ground operations are going on and where these people are trained – um, like Jordan and Turkey. And it it just got me thinking that, um, like when I was 
going back to when I was a kid, when I was first learning about this stuff, um, the the kind of dominant um, narrative, alternative narrative about 9-11 was, was that it was strictly this blowback. So the U.S. had done these things in the 80s and then basically washed their hands of it, and now they were experiencing the consequences of that because basically the guys they trained turned on America, turned on their masters, and now attacked the United States. Now, it doesn't look like that's totally the case because it looks like we have direct kind of American support for these same guys in Iraq, Libya, and now Syria. And um, so the the kind of question I have is how do you, how do you see the the American involvement over the years um, and are there kind of levels of involvement because um, I believe in one part of the book um, I don't have or it was in an article actually that that um, that was talking about your book and it had said basically that there's this kind of veil of secrecy in the sense that some of the guys that were getting recruited for these operations didn't even know that they were being recruited they basically found themselves on the, or from their perspective, they basically found themselves on the on the ground in the the war theater, basically. And um, I'm not really making much sense, but uh, does that kind of do you, do you see where I'm going with that? And uh, yeah, I, I do, I do. I mean, I in fact, I talked to Bob Bear and I put it into the book. I had a conversation with him on the phone when I was researching it. Uh, and he said, we did such a good job of recruiting these guys. They didn't know they were recruited. They said, oh, they might be Americans. Or they, they won't talk to us. But we had worked through the Saudis. We'd worked through the, the Pakistanis. Um, and you had guys uh, like a fellow named, I think, Badib, who was a Saudi carrying uh, bags of money uh, to Pakistan to uh, support the Mujahideen. It was parceled out to buy weapons. It was parceled out to pay off politicians and, and so forth. Um, and I, I think that, uh, as, uh, Richard Dreyfuss has said that, you know, the, the American involvement in the Middle East didn't really get deep, so deep, so fast as, as after 9-11 and whether or not, uh, this was planned, whether or not, it, uh, it was, let it happen on purpose or any of the other explanations, We'll never really know until somebody does a decent investigation. The, like the Kennedy assassination and like uh, September 11th, there was never any real in-depth uh, investigation by dispassionate sources. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it looks really peculiar uh, in so far as 9-11 goes because you had uh, uh, a government official, Shana Steinger, issuing visas to these guys, 11 of the 15 who got visas in Saudi Arabia, and somehow they come to the United States. And uh, uh, Schindler and his unholy terror uh, lists the names of the people who got the visas and uh, what they did for the, the September 11th attacks. So it's, it's, it's something to look into, and we unfortunately don't know enough about anything. Uh, but this uh, forum we had in um, New York in September uh, really is asking some hard questions uh, and is doing real investigations with architects and engineers and scientists as to what happened and how it happened. So, uh, yeah, I, I think we need to look at the, the political end of things as well. Well, towards the end of your book, um, I think you really get to the heart of the matter uh, when you discuss the, you know, the, the history of the CIA's actions in the Middle East and other places. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how they operate, 
uh, how incredibly uh, cunning and manipulative they are. And um, and I was just wondering if, if you had to explain to someone what the CIA is as an entity, CIA mm-hmm. being short for intelligence agencies and uh, think tanks and NGOs and, and mm-hmm. the whole apparatus that um, that's connected to it. Uh, how would you how would you explain the CIA to someone? What would you say about it? <laughs> well, I'd say that the the whole concept grew out of uh, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, which uh, I have long believed was uh, something that was encouraged and something that was known about in advance, uh, based on bits and pieces I've picked up over the years. But the idea of the the whole intelligence system being a uh, an early warning system uh, was conceived at the end of the war and uh, was organized by uh, Harry Truman, the Democrat president of the United States in the late 1940s. And he had wanted something that was basically an intelligence service, not a secret police agency. But what's happened over the years, and Truman himself had second thoughts, even as he signed the bill, because the uh, uh, Secretary of of Defense and the Secretary of State both opposed the the creation of the CIA and the NSA. Um, They they turned into a uh, essentially a secret police with a private army uh, based on the misinterpretation of one phrase in the initial authorizing act saying that – they would be able to engage in things which the uh, uh, National Security Council and the president uh, may deem necessary. And, of course, this create the CIA saw this as creating the uh, uh, clandestine service where you go and you recruit spies and uh, you go in and you blow things up and you destabilize governments. And uh, they've got the backing of uh, the Brookings Institution, which doesn't dare criticize the American government. Uh, you've got... Uh, uh, the right-wing organizations uh, like Cato and Heritage, uh, again, they, they love this and they think we should do more of it. And uh, they've created this climate of fear now that uh, they've run out of enemies. Uh, with the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union in uh, 1991, I guess, the, uh, they didn't have an enemy. But you had this huge military-industrial complex you had this huge range of intelligence services and all of the uh, uh, think tanks and things that fed off of them and advised them and uh, wrote uh, plans and books and analyses for them. They didn't have anybody to fight. And they said, we need more enemies. And you created this, this terrorist enemy out of whole cloth or maybe thin air. And, uh, They've been running with it ever since. They've got the Americans now uh, afraid of uh, terrorists hiding under every bed. You know, I want to be safe. Uh, I want somebody to torture somebody who might be uh, planning an attack on the United States. And I think 50 or 60 percent of the American people uh, support uh, torture as a means of uh, conducting foreign affairs. And look at what happened to uh, John Kiriakou. He uh, he confirmed to a, a journalist that, yes, the U.S. did use torture as a means of foreign policy, and he went to jail for 30 months. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's gone from bad to worse, and I don't see it getting any better. 
And and one of the things that really strikes home in your writings is just how many tentacles uh, the CIA has in uh, in the business and the politics and the economics uh, of of half the world. It seems. Yeah. Um, well, Wayne Madsen has come out with a new book in the last couple of weeks. Uh, it's a um, I forget the, the title is something along the lines of. Um, uh, the not-so-secret list of CIA front companies, hmm. uh, essentially leg- apparently legitimate businesses that essentially do most of the business on behalf of or with or to the CIA. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a very broad thing. I mean, you uh, back in the 50s, CIA created something called Operation Mockingbird, where they co-opted journalists to plant CIA-friendly articles in the newspaper or to create uh, CIA articles for the newspapers uh, out of thin air and uh, it's been going on ever since. You read the Washington Post and it's a house organ for the government and for the intelligence services. Right. In your book you mentioned that um, at the time or after a few years of uh, initiating Operation Mockingbird there were something like 3,000 journalists on the payroll and we can only imagine uh, how many more Journalists are embedded in Western media right now, yeah, yeah. and and it just it, it's it's exactly why the lies about Syria, about Russia, uh, about Libya are so pervasive because they drill like a Wurlitzer uh, these lies one after the other repeatedly, yeah. and uh, half the Western world, uh, those who don't find their uh, information elsewhere. Are, are completely brainwashed by this stuff. Yeah, I have thought in the past that the Europeans were a little bit more realistic and a little bit more skeptical, uh, but they're they're buying this line about, uh, oh, we need to bring all these poor refugees into Europe because they have no place to live in their own country, which has been destroyed. Well, the American government destroyed the countries. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the United States, you've got uh, people that don't really travel. If they, they've been, been to five different states, they're probably considered well-traveled. But they don't go to Europe, they don't go to Asia, they don't go to the Caribbean or Latin America or Africa, um, or anywhere else for that matter. And if they do go, they, they, they're looking for the American version of Disneyland in, in France or Germany, right. say. Uh, you know, we want to find something like America, not different from America. So they, they, they had nothing to compare it to. They haven't changed their attitudes based on the interactions with foreigners so that they simply agree, well, yeah, government does know best. Mm-hmm. And it's a shame. It's, it's, uh, and it's, it's costing them. I mean, the money that's being spent to destroy Yugoslavia, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, um, suppose they were put into repairing uh, crumbling bridges or leaking water mains or uh, um, highways that are clogged with traffic. I mean, you could uh, spend the money on uh, coordinating traffic lights. You could uh, uh, come up with public transportation systems and actually move people around like they, in the United States, like they do in Europe. Mm-hmm. Well, Mike, um, thanks again so much for joining us. I just want to recommend your book again, Visas for Al-Qaeda, CIA Handouts That Rock the World. Um, like you said, you can get it on Amazon. You can also go to Mike's website, michaelspringman.com, two ends. And it really is a great book. It's it, Even though it was written two years ago, it is 
relevant to what's going on right now and probably even I'd say like more relevant today than it was two years ago. It just becomes more and more topical based on what is going on at this very moment. So if you want to get the whole background, um, check out the book because it basically provides the the kind of the reality of what's been going on these past years. And it, it reading it, it makes sense of what's going on right now. You basically have the context that you'll be um, that you wouldn't have if you, you know, weren't into alternative news or if, you know, if you just watch the mainstream, because this stuff has been going on for 30 years. It's been, it's been in operation this whole time and it is not ending. So I think the first thing that all of us can do is just get aware of it. And I think that, uh, Mike, your book is a great way to start doing that. So thank you again for not only, you know, having the the backbone to, um, you know, stand up all these years and to finally end up writing this book and to speak about it. Um, I think it, uh, it's a great thing. It's a, it's a great example of courage and actually doing the right thing in a world where that is in sh- short supply. So thank you again, Mike. Absolutely, Mike. A very brave uh, act on your part and uh, continued success with getting your information out there and staying safe and, and sharing all this with everyone. Well, thank you for your kind words. I am pleased and honored to be able to speak to you and your listeners. All right. Thanks, Mike. So take care. Okay. Take care, thank you. Mike. Bye-bye. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. And for the second half of the show, we have brought in two more sought editors. So welcome to the table, William Barbe. Hello, everyone. And Carolyn McCallum. Hi. So, where do we want to go after that? What's the, what's the, what's the big news lately? Where do you want to start? <laughs> Domestically, internationally, we're, whatever. We're, were we going to talk about um, Trump <laughs> and Hillary? I suppose we have to. <laughs> well, um, they are plumbing new depths. Of- I like Maria Zakharova's little quote there that America is... Uh, stupidity is more dangerous than terrorism. Yeah, and it uh, it keeps getting more stupid. <laughs> and it's on full display. <laughs> yeah, so in case you haven't heard, um, it's been a story of leaks and counter-leaks. So this week, WikiLeaks released a bunch more emails from um, the Clinton campaign and from the last several years. I haven't even had a chance to look through a lot of them. I've seen a few stories, just some some nice little oh, they're, quotes they're, here and there. Oh, my goodness, they are. I'm sure the DNC is just having kittens at this point because it's, A, there's just so much of it, but it's uh, partly got what got leaked was uh, excerpts of some of her speeches, private paid speeches. One was to a bank where she was waxing lyric on the idea of a, open borders and open current, you know, financial transactions. And basically she was endorsing the TTIP, um, not in so many words, but certainly the spirit of it. So that's, you know, kind of scotches their whole, I'm, I'm for the little man and, you know, strengthening middle class and all of that. And then just, you know, that's bad enough. They, uh, there's another whole tranche of emails between her and a really shady PR group called Podesta Group. And if, if you want to really get a look at, at a lot of uh, 
nefarious goings-on, you can Google John Podesta and Podesta Group and see who they do PR for. And it's just like a, a, a roll call of nasty groups around the world where they create PR. They're a client. Or Saudi Arabia is a client. And uh, I don't have it in front of me. But anyway, the, the, uh, the emails, because Podesta was connected with her campaign, are between her organization and the DNC proper, where months before the convention they were already mapping out strategy to uh, counter anyone. They were developing strategies on everybody because this this was at the point, you remember, when during uh, the Republicans run up to the Republican convention, I mean, there were, what, 17 candidates at one point? It was lunacy. But they were seriously developing strategy on the six or seven who could potentially be an issue before anybody had been decided. So they're figuring out, okay, if Cruz gets in, we can smear him with this. And if, you know, Paul Ryan gets in, we'll get him on that. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, how to marginalize Bernie Sanders. So here is this organization that is supposed to be completely neutral, will of the people for their, or at least will of the Democratic Party who will represent their candidate and, I mean, the collusion is just their front and center. So more kittens and hysteria. Well, the funny thing for me about these leaks, both the Trump and Clinton leaks, is that from one perspective, it's it's not a surprise at all because this is the kind of stuff that has been going on probably for the last hundred years. I mean, this is how elections work where yeah. you, you dig up dirt on all your possible yeah. opponents and you prepare your strategy and you – uh, it, it's just what gets done. What's different about these days is that now we just get a little peek behind the curtain for the people that weren't actually aware of that, that mm -hmm. it's been going on for their entire lives. And the speed with which it can propagate. Yeah. Yay, Twitter. And the two of the other tidbits that I noticed from the, the Clinton leaks is first a comment, again, that isn't much of a surprise, where she explicitly tells, I believe it's one of the Wall Street talks that she gave might have been the Goldman Sachs one. And these are talks that she gave that uh, um, she and her team have been basically refusing to release what mm -hmm. she said at them. And so now we get excerpts from them that were included in these emails. And she says that um, it's important to have a public and a private policy stance on things. So it's important to have the to know what you're actually going to do. And then it's important to tell the public that you're going to do something completely different. What they want to hear. What they want to hear. And again, nothing new. <laughs> This is what politicians do all the time, but it's nice to, to have it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. <laughs> then the one where she's talking about Syria in 2013 and talking about the prospects of a no-fly zone and what a no-fly zone over Syria would entail. And again, nothing new because we know what no-fly zones entail, but she explicitly says again that this would require that we take, that we, you know, the U.S. military and the coalition takes out all of Syria's air defenses. Mm -hmm. And because these are in heavily populated areas, this would mean killing a lot of Syrians. Mm -hmm. So in the three years since then, there has been a lot of talk about a no-fly zone, and they're still talking about it, mm -hmm. and yet they don't mention this fact when they talk about a no-fly zone in public. Um, it's such a benign phrase. Yeah. Well, and it's it's not even... 
It's, it's totally not true because a no-fly zone doesn't mean there's no flights right. that, that no one's allowed to fly. It means only the enemy isn't allowed to fly, but the American jets have total freedom to fly and then bomb whoever they want. That's what a no-fly zone is. Yes. And uh, this is, um, you know, this was demonstrated uh, previously in Libya, uh, where France and/or the U.S. Uh, had established a no-fly zone after uh, after accusing Gaddafi of killing 300 of his own people. Uh, so it's a pattern. Uh, it's part of the playbook. It's something that we we see again and again. Mm-hmm. I think that there was a uh, a no-fly zone established in Iraq at mm-hmm. some point a number of years ago as well. And then Kosovo, which was kind of the model. Yeah. So uh, it, it, it's just one of those things in the name of uh, saving lives and humanitarian intervention uh, that's really just a cover for, uh, like you said, Harrison, you know, the, a kind of uh, militarily strategic um, dominion over a certain part of uh, a country that they want to uh, dominate. And then not to not to leave Trump out of the discussion, um, there. I'm sure everyone's heard by now that um, a conversation that he had with a, a journalist, what was the guy's name, Matt Bush, something Bush, um, filmed or recorded while he was in the in the van before heading into some TV studio to mm-hmm. make an appearance on like Days of Our Lives or something like that, some mm-hmm. soap opera, and. The mic was on and it got recorded and he's having this kind of um, lewd conversation with this Bush guy. And, you know, we won't repeat what he says on the air, but it's pretty offensive. Mm-hmm. And um, Very locker room. Yes. And so this comes out just, what did it come out yesterday? Yeah. The day before the second presidential debate, which is scheduled for tonight. Coincidentally, and also it came right after these Clinton uh, email leaks. So that's why I called it the leaks and counter leaks, is that this is the direction that the election has been going and will probably continue, mm-hmm. is that something gets leaked about Clinton, and then the Democratic Party does whatever they can to cover it up. They focus on the, fa- the, the fact, the un- unproven fact, and the non-fact that Russia was behind it. So, so that distracts from the attention away from what was actually in the leaks. Mm-hmm. And then they counter-leak and put something out about Trump. And of course, there's, they've probably got a lot on Trump that they haven't even um, released yet because there's just so much material. Well, what's interesting is that uh, with Trump, the stuff that's coming out on Hillary are not his leaks. No. They're just out there, which I find kind of interesting. He just kind of has to wait. And, you know, every week or so, another useful bomb drops, but he didn't have to lift a finger to do it. Mm-hmm. I, I want to say uh, several days ago that there was a, a kind of a death threat that was made on behalf of um, or from uh, someone connected to the uh, Hillary uh, campaign against Julian Assange uh, just prior to uh, Assange, you know, making this um, announcement that, that he was going to be dropping yet another big bombshell mm-hmm. about Hillary. Uh, and then, you know, this had caused um, Assange to back off a little bit. Um, uh, although, you know, making such a public threat in the way that, that this guy did, and I forget his name, 
you'd think that you know Assange would be safer in a way um, because if he were killed or something happened to him, then people could very easily uh, associate uh, such violence to Hillary Clinton's team. Well, and then there's the allegation that Clinton herself had mm-hmm. said in conversation with someone or in, with some team, well, why don't we just drone the guy? Yeah. And she's like, oh, that's a joke. Yeah, so she said, well, I don't, <laughs> I, rem- just... I don't remember saying that, but if I did say it, it was a joke. Um, yeah. So kind of like Obama joking about um, dropping bombs on people. Droning, droning potential boyfriends for his daughters. <laughs> yeah, so that's the kind of people that uh, run for president. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the subject of Trump, because um, this is a huge controversy, the, a lot of GOP guys are... Oh, rev- they're all jumping ship. Yeah, jumping ship, revoking their backing for him, criticizing him for it. I mean, and rightfully so, um, the guy is uh, <laughs> just a cretin, but... Well, Pence is still holding his nose and hanging in there. Yeah. So. Well, a lot of them are, yeah. and uh, and that's the thing is that I uh, I really doubt that this will have much effect at all on Trump's support for a f- uh, well numerous reasons, but just a few of which are that I think that a lot of the a lot of people who do like Trump, well, first of all, there are the people that don't necessarily like him, just like the people who don't really like Clinton, but they're voting against the other candidates. Mm-hmm. So there are people who will just vote for Trump no matter what because Hillary is such an evil. Um, well, person. And then there are the hardcore Trump supporters, and these are the guys and women and men who like Trump because he's a bit of a jerk, or a lot of a jerk. I mean, because he's... He's keeping it real. Yeah, he's keeping it real, and he's just like them. So, I mean, this is what... This has been Trump's... Pretty much his his campaign strategy is to be as, as big of a jerk as possible, and people like him for it. Because... Well, th- there's... um. We had an article the other day uh, that was on SOT, which um, the title resembled something like, um, I listened to a Trump supporter, which was written by a guy who uh, was discussing um, an old acquaintance of his his, uh, decision to vote for Trump. And it was very interesting, and it was an angle that I had never read before. Um, Although, you know, at least not fleshed out to the extent that, that this um, article had it fleshed out. And um, basically, uh, the woman who was um, voting for Trump uh, had recognized in, in Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, what we all recognize, basically, that, that she's affiliated with Wall Street and more. And, and uh, you know, this is a woman, a very hardworking person who had her own business and who had been shafted by banks and um, and wasn't very sophisticated, uh, relatively speaking, in terms of information. Kind of knew that Trump's a jerk, but she, she was just very, very hardworking, blue, you know, blue collar, blue collar, working class, but, but absolutely desperate uh, to have anyone who resembled uh, being on her side. Now we've said many times here on the show and and on Sot that. Um, it's quite likely Trump will um, kind of cave into the pressures of uh, um, geopolitics and and uh, and banking industry and and what have you uh, that are so prevailing in Washington D.C. But it's just a testament to uh, the the desperation uh, to to find any uh, leadership in this country. 
that resembles um, something outside of what what has been done here for so long. And um, the the writer of the piece spoke with a, a good deal of empathy for this person. Um, it wasn't clear whether or not he was a Clinton supporter or not, um, but you know. It, there is something to be said for the amount of people who are jerks and who identify with Trump because of his racism and xenophobia. But I think there's also something to be said for the numbers of people who, uh, who are looking for something else. Um, and now that Bernie Sanders is out of it, however good he may have been, and the fact that folks like Jill Stein and Gary Johnson really don't have any chance uh, this is, you know, this is just a last, um, a last ditch effort to to put their vote towards someone who they believe, you know, may uh, possibly, hopefully, God willing, uh, do something good for for them. Well, what I find interesting is that there's one big scandal I think that the Clinton team hasn't latched on yet. And that is, it's been in the news for a while, um, but on the on September 30th, a new lawsuit was filed, and this is actually, it's an older case, so it's been in the news for longer than just the last week and a half, but this new lawsuit was filed on uh, September 30th against Donald Trump and Jeffrey Epstein. And this, um, the, the person um, about whom this lawsuit or the, the person for whom this lawsuit uh, represents, it was a 13-year-old girl in 1994 or 1996, I believe. And she is saying that both Jeffrey Epstein and Donald Trump raped her at Jeffrey Epstein's property in New York um, several times over uh, at several of these you know, infamous parties that Jeffrey Epstein uh, was putting on. Now, that's interesting for a number of reasons, one of which is that this is a real, actual rape allegation, whereas this leak has Trump basically talking like a 15-year-old in the locker room with his buddies, um, and you know, not not actually implying that he necessarily even did anything illegal. It's definitely like immoral and, and you know, kind of disgusting. But he never said, you know, I raped people, I raped women, or anything like that. Um, and here's this real allegation of an actual rape against a 13-year-old, and the Clint, uh, you know, the Democrats, Clinton, isn't saying anything about it at this point. Now, that's probably because Jeffrey Epstein was also close friends with Bill Clinton, and mm -hmm. Bill Clinton is caught up in exactly the same stuff. Yeah, that would be a can of worms they do not want to open. And to, to Trump is funny because he's kind of uh, a jerk out in the open. He's what every, well, pr probably like three out of four American presidents have been for the past 50 years uh, behind closed doors. But he's most of that stuff just out in the open because he doesn't really have a, a filter, um, you know. And <laughs> good politicians have that filter. They are, the best ones are psychopaths who can just easily keep their private lives private by putting on a very convincing mask of sanity. Trump doesn't have that. And, I mean, he says stupid things at inopportune times that are just, then just, he totally exposes himself. He just has to open his mouth to discredit himself. And, but if you look back at just Bill Clinton, I mean, <laughs> Bill Clinton was a 
you know, he's a, a great speaker. He comes across as this really nice, affable guy. And yet, this is a guy who has multiple rape allegations against him. People, like, uh, I mean, there's not only, well, go ahead. Juanita Broderick. Juanita yes. Broderick. The best, one of the best known ones. And Paula... <laughs> Paula Jones. Paula, Jones. Paula Jones. And they're all in the news right now Jennifer saying, Flowers. okay, well, so Trump has has apologized. His wife, Melania, has, has apologized and kind of slapped him in this little statement. You know, it was basically, oh, I'm totally offended by what my husband said, but that's not the man I know. And I forgive him because he apologized and he's been a great guy ever since, you know, we've we've been together. But he also said something kind of uh, funny, which uh, which speaks to, you know, what you we're saying, Carolyn, I think about the Clinton campaign being very careful around bringing up these allegations. Mm-hmm. And that was, you should have heard the stuff that Bill Clinton would tell me on the golf course. He said that? <laughs> yes, he oh did. Oh, my gosh, I missed that. <laughs> yeah, it was far worse than, you know. So, you know, w- w- he does a couple of things when he says such a thing. He One, he deflects from his, his own, um, yeah. you know, behavior. You think I'm bad. And two, yeah, it's like. Yeah, the lady I'm running against, her husband is, is even worse, and she, you know, she's a reflection of him. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's classic Trump uh, deflection, but you know, in in a way, he has a a point. Uh, it's like don't cast any stones on me. Well, the point is that we, the United States, already has had a president that was worse than him in this regard, mm-hmm. and Bill Clinton arguably was. And is, you know, because he's still alive, worse than Trump in this regard. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all kinds of tr- things about Trump that are worse than other people. But in, at least when it comes to this particular topic, um, Bill Clinton's just a, a, a rapist. He was a serial rapist. He is a serial rapist. And he was president of the United States. And do we want him back in the White House <laughs> as yeah, the first man? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, speaking of the, the Clintons... Um, uh, a, a big story in the news domestically has been uh, Hurricane Matthew, uh, which kind of, not kind of, but really inflicted quite a lot of damage in Haiti. Uh, there, mm. there have been some numbers uh, estimated at 300 deaths there, and another one at uh, uh, over 800 deaths. And um, it really uh, brings back because it's the worst disaster uh, since the earthquake back in 2010. Uh, so bringing this back around to the Clintons, uh, you know, their, their Clinton Foundation was affiliated with this Haiti relief effort um, where they, in fact, pocketed most of the money that was earmarked towards building, rebuilding Haiti, uh, rebuilding infrastructure, uh, creating uh, hospitals and schools and roads and, and just making basic living conditions for these people um, livable. They just handed out all these no-bid contracts and nothing ever happened. Yeah, well, they did manage to build some luxury hotels. Oh, uh, how nice. But uh, again, they pocketed a lot of the money. Uh, and and of course, you know, this is money that that could have made the quality of life for for many Haitians, uh, just vastly different from what it is today. Mm-hmm. So, you know, hearing about Hurricane Matthew, and it's just a stark reminder um, of of what the what the Clintons do, 
And um, not that they're responsible for a hurricane, uh, at least not directly. That's that's for another program. Uh, but um, these are these are you know the more you read about them, they're just horrible uh, human beings. I wonder if they'll try to pull it again. Are they are they stupid enough to try and do the whole shtick over again? Mm-hmm. That'll be interesting. Mm-hmm. Well. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, the, the one point I wanted to just finish was about the, uh, I was talking about Trump and Melania mm-hmm. and how Juanita Broderick and, all, and Paula Jones and a bunch of other women have gone onto Twitter and basically said, okay, so Trump apologized, his wife apologized, we and I, like I and we collectively have yet to receive an apology from Bill Clinton or Hillary for all the for the for all the things that they both did to us, because all of these ladies allege that not only did Bill Clinton rape them, but that Hillary Clinton threatened them, covered it up, mm-hmm. and basically protected him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, on the on the one hand, you have Trump, who's a totally irresponsible, you know, um, bottom barrel jerk, <laughs> jerk of a of a person. <laughs> on the other hand, you have Hillary Clinton, who's Pretty much the same, mm-hmm. and of course, um, it's it's totally low low brow to just get into to sex lives. But I'll just say that there's plenty out there about Hillary Clinton to um, um, to make her a contender. Let's just <laughs> put it that way. Yeah. Moving on. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, there's always Syria, <laughs> where the Russians and Syrian army are cleaning up. Aleppo, they estimate, will fall in less than three weeks. And that is what the U.S. has considered to be a defeat. That, that uh, I can't remember who it is, but somebody was saying if, if, if the Syrian regime is allowed to take Aleppo, it would be a complete disaster, and you know, we have to prevent the regime from, from, from prevailing. And it's just... Uh, yeah, not going to happen. Well, it looks nope. like we've got, we've got a caller. Caller... You are almost on the line. Hi, caller, are you there? Right. Hello, can, yes. Yes, hi. This is, uh, can Who you do we have me? here? This is Denise calling from hi, Dallas. Denise. Welcome. Hi, uh, Denise. Hi. This is my first, uh, I found you guys today. This is wonderful. Okay, I just want to say a few things. I'm a uh, Texas woman, a patriot. I've been Republican all my life. And to me, the most obvious thing is not being addressed by, well, few people. And the thing is, Trump, actually, in, in my, I know this to be true, Trump and Vladimir Putin are the only statesmen in the world, and I will say statesmen, who are fighting, openly fighting against the new NWO, the New World Order. Mm-hmm. This is not about Republicans, Democrats. This is much, this is uh, more about keeping America as a country or becoming dissolved into the entire global, global structure. And in my opinion, I do take exception to calling uh, Mr. Trump, Trump a Britain. I will say that it was unfortunate what happened. Uh, yes, a lot of people would would say he's a jerk, but quite <laughs> frankly, we are having such a magnificent struggle right now in this entire globe 
that, quite frankly, I believe a Cretan is necessary to do the job. And I just wanted to say that because we need somebody who's uh, outrageous. I, it doesn't <laughs> bother me so much that he's outrageous because, quite frankly, I'm very outrageous and a lot of people think mm-hmm. uh, I'm outrageous. And so I, I understand <laughs> he's a man of his convictions, and that's all I wanted to say about that. Well, it is in Trump's favor and and credit that he is willing to state things as they are you know not always the most graceful way but you know he he is quite upfront we're spending money all over the world we can't afford to we're and you know we are antagonizing every country in the world especially countries that could inflict a lot of damage on us so to to his credit he's he's out in front saying that he just has some drawbacks yeah yeah denise i i thank first of all thanks for calling in and and yeah, for yeah. sharing that with us and i just want to say that uh that I, you know, while we may disagree on some points, I, I, I think we agree on that main point that you just made, and that is that, well, from my perspective, so this will add a little bit of my bias into there, but I'd say that even though I don't like Trump, that I agree with you, and I think that the one thing that he has that, that, um, that makes him, like, a candidate better than Hillary Clinton, for example, is that he is um, taking at least a vocal stance against Basically, the um, well, I'd, I'd focus on foreign policy—the the just totally horrendous and murderous foreign policy that the United States has been on been on for um, just decades—and that Hillary Clinton represents. So Hillary Clinton basically does represent this, like as you called it, NWO, like New World Order agenda, which is just for more warfare, spending trillions of dollars overseas, and neglecting um, the actual United States. And I wouldn't call that very patriotic at all. I, I'd call it imperialistic and um, completely immoral. So um, while I don't necessarily think that um, like a bad person is necessary, I think that just a person who is against that is necessary. And um, and so that might be the one thing that kind of pushes him over the edge and makes him like you know if you were if you had to choose between Hillary and, and Trump. Even though I don't like Trump, I'd say, well, you know, it's uh, <laughs> might it might as well, right? No. no. Well, because we, I, and there's I would nothing. Like to say, oh, go ahead. I, I would like I would like to say one last thing on the subject of the Russians. I do not believe this, um, you know, kind of trying to get this Russian uh, U.S. that they the Russians are our enemies. I do not believe that. I do mm-hmm. not see it. Mm-hmm. All I know is what they say on the t- on the uh, TV, which is censored. But I will say this. I see Vladimir doing good things for his country. He loves his country. We need somebody who loves our country. And I'm sure you, uh, uh, you uh, people know the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And that exactly describes describes Russia and Vladimir Putin. One more thing I will say for those who know anything about uh, Christian mysticism, Edgar Cayce mm-hmm. prophesied yes. many, many tens of years ago that Russia would be the savior of the world. So just please think about that too. I oh, believe I, I love I love what the Russians are doing. And I believe they are our friends. Do not believe this stuff 
on the TV about, oh, the Russians are doing this. The Russians, are, that's just, I just don't, I, I'll go behind. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, the, the thing about the Russians, and, and you know, it's, it's wonderful that you've picked up on it, is that they are very forthright about what they plan to do and what their views are, and they follow them. They follow them. They, they, res- they say sovereignty is important. They are respecting serious sovereignty. They say cooperation is important. I mean, you know, Putin, Putin on the one hand, is, is very much the businessman, and, and war is destructive and wasteful when we could all be making money from each other. Why not? And he backs that up. So this, this I think, and is... Putin, go ahead. Putin has kicked out the central banks. That's the thing. This is a, a war war between the uh, blank uh, global banking structure will, that, that wants to enslave us all. And, hey, Putin is handling that part for his country. Mm-hmm. I would like to see us handle it for our country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the – I'm glad you brought this up, Denise, again, um, because you pointed out that what the United States really needs is, is a leader that cares about the United States as – Putin does for Russia and does good things for their own country. And a part of that is that if you look at the the Russian approach to politics with other nations, the way they approach politics is, it, well, they call it multipolarism. So it's, uh, it's an equal relationship between states, between nations, where they negotiate and they come to the best possible um, deals between the two nations that benefit both nations and Russia and China are, do this with all of their allies, and they are very vocal about saying that they want to do it with everyone, basically. That this is the, this is the model, even the United States, that this is the model that the world should be based on, about respecting other nations. And basically, if you look at it in terms of um, just like an interpersonal relationship, it's treating all, treating all the people around you as if they are their own people and not your slaves to be exploited and um, you know, told what to do, and so I think that that is what the United States needs: is a leader who not only cares about the United States but takes a different approach to geopolitics. Because ever since World War II, um, with brief and minor exceptions, the approach of the United States and its leadership has been to exploit the world, to um, to take out foreign governments that they that they don't like to send death squads into countries that uh, that they don't like that that where their national interests are are at risk um, so-called and to set up vassal nations slave nations essentially and to be the the you know the world the exceptional world uh, well I was gonna say dominatrix but <laughs> the um, just the dictator of the world essentially and that doesn't work, and it's it's sh- it's shown that it doesn't work. It's just it just creates misery for the planet. So, yeah, I, th- I think that not only do we need someone who who actually focuses on domestic issues, but um, fixes the way that the United States relates to other countries. Mm-hmm. Denise, can I ask you I'll a question? I have to say one last thing. Sure, sure. One, one last thing. One last thing on the subject of this world domination. Mm-hmm. It's not so much to exploit the world it's to uh, dominate it's the banking structure Mm -hmm. but what we did with uh, Qaddafi in uh, Libya Libya, uh, Qaddafi was beloved by his people he was doing so so many great things Uh, 
my goodness, it's too much to talk about. But he kicked the bankers out. He established his own currency, gold-backed, which was not under domination of the global banking structure. That's why they had to get rid of him. So, and they're trying to do the same thing in Syria. Mm-hmm. It's just one by one, but just just to establish puppet governments, puppet lead, leaders of other countries, and that's, this has got to stop. Absolutely. We cannot have peace in the world with that kind of shenanigans. <laughs> Absolutely, thank you so much, well, Denise. It was- Denise, I I just um, I wanted to ask you a question, if I may. Uh, and sure. I want I wanted to ask you, Denise, if um, what you thought of the uh, of the the fact that uh, so many guys are coming out in support of Trump, um, who like uh, John Bolton and uh, Donald Rumsfeld has has expressed interest in the Trump administration, and you have this uh, this ex CIA guy from the early 90s i forget his name but he goes out to colleges and kind of um kind of talks up the war on terror the bogus war on terror uh do you have any concern that if they became a part of his administration that he would um he would be subject to their uh their new world order kind of uh council that that they would infect his thinking and and influence his uh his kind of um, his best ideas. This is my thought about that. Uh, once the person has ascended to the presidency of the United States, they are subject to all kinds of influences. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know what's in his heart of heart. I would hope, I would hope that he would not be influenced in such a way as that. However, the other person we already know is being influenced by that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it still is. Uh, it's like the level, the devil you don't know rather than you, the devil you know. Mm-hmm. The right. devil we know is Hillary Clinton. <laughs> and the devil we don't know or would hope would not be a devil is uh, Trump. Well said. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thanks again for calling in, Denise. We hope to hear from you again sometime. Thanks so much. I'm so glad I found you. Bye-bye. Oh, great. Take care. Okay. Bye, Denise. Bye. Oh, from the heartland. That was refreshing. <laughs> really informed, yeah. intelligent person calling in and uh, with informed point of view. And, uh, yeah, I, I wonder how many of um, her friends and people she knows feel the same way. Yeah. Well, I'm just glad because sometimes... Uh, we often get callers that call in that disagree with us about something that we've said, um, but they do so in a very rude fashion. So I just want to thank Denise for being so uh, diplomatic and uh, <laughs> just a, a great conversationalist. Mm-hmm. That's a it's a nice refreshing change from nice. from the trolls. Um, I guess w- unless we have uh, any other couple stories that we want to get to, we can get to the police state roundup. Was there anything else that we wanted to cover? Before we get there? No? Okay. Then if, uh, Brent, if you're listening, then uh, call in and we'll just talk for a few seconds before before you get here. Oh, let's see. Where's your warrant? Show me the warrant. Show me the warrant. Show me the warrant. Show me the warrant. Yes, you 
Oh, they just said they did not have a warrant. Get out of my house unless you have a warrant right now. You keep smiling at me like this is some kind of funny thing. Okay, I, okay? there's nothing funny about this. No, wait, then stop smiling. Right, right! Hands in your head! Good! Good now! Brent, welcome back to the show. Hey, thank you. What do you it's got? Been a really interesting today? discussion. Yeah. Um, a lot of stories. Uh, instead of kind of just like hitting bullet points, though, I kind of wanted to talk about um, systemic lack of accountability um, in policing when they, especially when they commit some sort of crime or a questionable offense. It was a major topic on um, John Oliver's recent show. And mm-hmm. while I tend to disagree with him, some of the things he has to say, this show was kind of spot on and that it really highlighted um, examples of police not being held to account and how frequently they're able to kind of um, get away with murder. Um, and he goes into a couple of different things. Um, like, for example, like there's just no data on how many people are shot and killed by police every year. I mean, there is data, but you have to go looking for it. And the best data comes from an independent researcher named Philip Stenson. He's a criminologist with Bowling Green State University. And the way that he gets his information is he set up Google alerts back in 2005, and he's just been co- co- collecting it ever since. Um, his stuff shows that there have been thousands of police shootings uh, in the United States in the last 11 years. And out of that, those thousands of shootings, only 11, uh, or I'm sorry, only 77 officers have been charged with a crime. And out of those, only 26 have been convicted. Um, So it's just like, you know, we have all these shootings from Tamir Rice um, and everybody else that's gone down recently and in the not too distant past. And it's just frequently there's just they're not even brought um, they're not even brought up on charges, and we ta- he talks about the reasoning behind that, um, kind of goes into show that um, you know when police investigate an- another officer for potential wrongdoing, um, they will cast that officer in the best possible light. Uh, Department of Justice report found that. Um, in Cleveland, quote, investigators told us they intentionally cast an officer in the best possible light when investigating the officer's use of deadly force. Um, and further, in Miami, these investigations take so long that at least two officers shot and killed a suspect while still under investigation for a previous shooting. Um, and these are just two little things that kind of like are replicated across the board um, in in America. And, you know, it's it makes it really difficult because everybody's heard maybe this thin blue line. Um, sometimes it's kind of <clears throat> referred to as, as blue, blue privilege, but basically anytime a police officer comes out and tries to blow the whistle or, you know, report corruption or report wrongdoing by their fellow officers, they're threatened or um, even retaliated against with violence. Um, uh, Serpico is a case from you know many years ago, which kind of highlights this practice, where when an officer um, comes out against his brethren, uh, all of a sudden you know they're not getting back up on calls, you know they're harassed in the workplace, um, and this is a regular practice, and you know the saying, you know like a lot of uh, 
a lot of defenders, police apologists, um, people that come out and say, oh, this isn't really a big deal. It's only a few bad apples. You know, Oliver makes the point that, you know, the saying isn't, it's just a few bad apples. Don't worry about it. It's a few bad apples ruins the whole bunch. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it, it's kind of weird to hear, um, you know, police higher ups use this, this sort of logic in order to defend or dismiss police crimes when they don't even seem to have a cursory understanding of what it is they're saying. Um, there's another guy, uh, Michael Wood. He is a ex cop from Baltimore. He was a former Marine and he's a big, um, big name in um, advocating for exposing police corruption and police crime. There's uh, a lot of videos uh, with interviews um, with him out on YouTube. You can find him quite easily just by, you know, Googling Mike Wood, a uh, cop. And, you know, he goes into the litany of systemic problems among policing. Uh, his experience was specific to Baltimore. But again, the, his experience really kind of speaks to policing in America in general. You know, he talks about how um, cops will physically assault people for, you know, so much as bumping into them or how they arrest black people just because they need to make a quota. Um, and this highlights that we have a systemic problem here. And it, again, it's, it's not just a few bad apples. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another big problem is that officers can even have complaints against them wiped from their record. Um, there was an internal video in Baton Rouge, which was you know, shown to the officers there, reminding them to periodically go through their personnel file and have their uh, you know, complaints against them purged according to department policy. So you can't even track the bad apples. <laughs> and then there's even a term for police that um, they'll, they'll, you know, if they have so many complaints against them or if there's an investigation looming, they may just resign to avoid the whole mess and go look for a job somewhere else. And this happens so frequently, there's a term for it. They're called gypsy cops. Um, one of these officers, for example, he moved to nine jurisdiction in nine years. And one of those years, he moved three times. Um, and this particular cop was found in one of these instances, uh, drunk driving with a bottle of whiskey and a bag of assorted pills in his police cruiser. And when he was confronted during the investigation, I guess, you know, they offered, you know, to, you know, he has to take a drug test or something. And he said, quote, I'm not taking no drug test. I guess I'll resign. (laughs) So it's just like, wow, like it Mm -hmm. blows my mind. Um, And speaking of Tamir Rice, this officer was in the process of being fired from his previous position um, before he was uh, working in Cleveland and, um, and got his current job. There was even a note in his personnel file from a training exercise in which he was handling a firearm, making it abundantly clear that this individual shouldn't be handling a firearm and that no amount of training or um, practice would probably solve the problem. But the city, you know, must have missed that note somehow in the hiring process. And as a result, we have a dead 12-year-old and uh, $6 million of taxpayer money being paid out to the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in that case, the city was still adamant that there was no wrongdoing on the part of the officer. Um, Are they that just, desperate and, for staff? Yeah, I don't, I don't know what, this, what the, um, the justification is there. But you would think that, you know, almost like hiring a doctor that you would, you know, have some sort of, <laughs> some sort of process to vet these individuals just to make sure that they could do the job and do the job well. 
I mean, I faced more scrutiny when applying for a job as a, uh, you know, a lab technician, or um, I applied for a job to, um, to be a uh, phone call person for, for counseling young individuals um, who are having issues with HIV and AIDS. And, you know, they, they kind of shot me down because I didn't really have any experience. But, you know, it seems like these officers, not only do they have, you know, not that much experience, but they have bad experience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's specifically stated that they shouldn't be handling weapons, and they are. Wasn't there a ruling several years ago, some kind of a court ruling that you couldn't put uh, an, an intelligence, like a, a certain intelligence level? Like you, you couldn't make that part of yeah. the qualifications. So the so, story there was in, uh, I think it was in New York State. Uh, a guy was rejected um, for from employment from being an officer because he took a intelligence test and scored too high, and he yeah. sued. Um, yeah. And the justification there was that, oh well, if you're you know if your intelligence is too high, you're gonna you're gonna move on. You know all the time and training that gets invested in the individual will be wasted. Well, it just, frankly, it just seems like a, a load of horse hockey. Like mm -hmm. he's, the time and training clearly isn't, isn't very much. Um, and when you compare the training that officers in America undergo versus officers in other countries, it's dismal. Mm -hmm. It's much, much less. Um, and they don't get specific instruction on how to handle people with mental illness, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and frequently, you know, officers are, encountering people with mental illness, you know, either they're homeless or, you know, somebody's having some sort of psychotic episode and they're called to the scene in order to kind of bring calm and, and kind of restore, you know, peace. And very frequently they kill that individual. Just recently, um, there was a, <clears throat> a ruling that came down for a guy that was killed by police um, on the side of the road in Georgia. This guy was having a psychotic episode. His family couldn't control him. So they pulled over and called 911 for help. And the officers showed up, a bunch of them piled on top of him. They tased him repeatedly, um, and he died on the side of the street. Um, it was just really sad, 32-year-old guy with his fiance in the car. Um, and those cops were, you know, cleared of any wrongdoing, no charges. Um, and there's another case that I thought was particularly interesting, uh, which kind of highlights this um, sort of blue privilege that officers get. There was a, an officer <clears throat> drove to another officer's house with her three-year-old daughter in the car. Um, the officer got out of the car, went into the other one's house, left her daughter in the car for somewhere around four hours um, without checking on her. And another officer um, arrived at the scene and found the child in the car dead. And, um, you know, this is still under investigation. But a lot of similar cases where parents leave children in, in their car and, you know, they die either because they get overheated or, you know, they're not, they're not properly taken care of, whatever, you know, it's criminal negligence. And these individuals get, you know, immediately arrested and thrown in jail. The two officers in this case were um, given a paid vacation, you know, pending the outcome of the investigation. And this is, again, you know, consistently we see officers that are being investigated for criminal wrongdoing. They get a paid vacation. They're not arrested. They're not held. They get treated with the utmost respect. And, um, you know, it really highlights this, this blue privilege. Um, Oliver also continued to talk about how prosecutors and cops work in very close-knit, uh, almost a symbiotic relationship. And it makes it incredibly difficult to prosecute a cop 
when um, the prosecutor in question, you know, may have worked with this individual. They may have a relationship. So it's virtually impossible to get impartiality, um, which is something that the rest of Americans aren't, you know, really privileged to. You know, especially if you're uh, African-American or Latino, you know, it's not presumption of innocence. You get presumption of guilt. <laughs> hey, um, Brent. Um, yeah. So, so as you're um, as you were discussing that and talking about blue privilege, uh, I, I couldn't help but be reminded of all the parallels between the U.S. police state and the red, white and blue privilege uh, that the the national security state or the U.S. empire kind of uh, imposes around the world uh, in being the so-called world's policemen and, and uh, all these so-called humanitarian interventions and collateral damage and, and drone strikes and just wholesale murder around the world. Um, do you have any thoughts about the, the, the parallels between what we're seeing here domestically and, and, and this larger, uh, this larger kind of phenomenon we're seeing unfold with the U S military and, and NATO intervention around the world. Yeah. Well, it, it kind of reeks of similarity, right? We have America is the exceptional nation and we, we've heard all kinds of politicians from Hillary Clinton to president Obama you know, to, you know, everybody that came before them, you know, repeatedly talk about how America is some sort of an exceptional city on a hill that just has this, you know, I don't know whether it's God given, but they seem to almost act as if it's this mandate to behave as, you know, the world's hegemon. And we see the same among our officers. And now, I don't know if that's intentional, but what would, what, what occurs to me is that, you know, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. We have, you know, a government on a national and global level behaving one way. Why wouldn't its representatives behave the same way domestically? Oh, so when, when police can... are... Go ahead. Um, I was just going to say, um, you know, when police are, you know, accused of crime, it's it's almost impossible unless the, the circumstances are so egregious to um, to prove that there was some sort of wrongdoing. And even when there is a payout, to, to families in a civil lawsuit, for example, very frequently the department and the city will still admit no wrongdoing. Well, it, it struck me that a lot of uh, police today are often ex-military, and they would bring that attitude of impunity into the job. Yep, that's another point. Uh, frequently, you have these guys come back from war zones, and then mm -hmm. they're given a badge and a gun and you know put out on the streets. Mm -hmm. So you, you can't help but wonder, you know, <laughs> that same sort of mentality and training and and uh, the way that they view, you know, civilians in, in war zones as potential enemy combatants is probably, you know, being carried with them back here, which could explain why frequently officers seem to treat civilians as, as objects mm -hmm. to kind of do with what they will. There was a story I read not too long ago um, where um, police... <clears throat> we're looking for a murder suspect um, and they invaded the home of a family, you know, because one of the family members supposedly looked like the suspect. Now, this was an African-American family, African-American suspect. 
And they brought the whole family out at gunpoint, you know, and this is including young children. And they forced them all to lie down on cold, wet concrete with guns in their backs. It's like if you had the most basic humanity and the most basic respect for your fellow human beings, you wouldn't do that. Like, I, I can't even imagine, like, as my, myself, like, putting a young child on the ground and pointing a gun at his back. Like it just, it almost brings tears to my eyes to think about it. And, and that's what these people do, you know, and it's all according to procedure and it's all according to protocol. And, you know, anytime you try to bring up these problems with police officials, they are adamant and vitriolic in their defense of, you know, this is the way it must be done. There's no other way to do this. Policing is a very difficult job. You don't understand da, 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 on and on and on, you know, and it's become clear that, you know, Americans all across the nation of all colors um, have a problem with, with the way policing is being done and that something needs to be, needs to change. When you were telling that story, I just thought that, um, Oh, we're getting feedback from, from your mic. There, Sorry. Let me turn it down. So I just thought about the, the, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so distracting. I thought about what Alan, what Alan was saying about the parallels between, uh, domestic and foreign policy, and the, the like the raid on someone's house, looking for a different suspect or drugs or something, and it's in the wrong house, and it just made me think that you know they're looking for those weapons of mass destruction. If you just think about the parallels, and the parallels are even worse when you look at the uh, at f- foreign entanglements, because it's not like if you look at Iraq, it's not like they were actually looking for weapons of mass destruction. That was the just the pretext for uh, a separate agenda. Now, I, I think that, well, at this point with the police, I can buy the excuse that they are just really stupid and that they get the wrong house every once in a while, or a lot of the times, and that they, you know, that they, they kill someone because they're trained to do so and, and, um, and you know, the heat of the moment, their reflexes just kick in and they, and they kill this person. Whereas if you look at... Um, what's going on internationally, you have assassination lists where Obama says, okay, sure, we're going to murder this person. And they go and do it and they kill a bunch of civilians in the process. So if if we were to actually um, import the way that America does war in other nations and bring it home, it would even be worse mm-hmm. because you'd have the police saying, okay, we want this person dead let's go to their house and kill them. Well, they probably do that in certain, in certain instances. And you'd have them, you know, setting up certain just innocent families who have done nothing wrong and saying, okay, well, we, we just want that person's house or maybe we want the money that we know they've gotten it. So we're just going to say that it was, uh, that we got the wrong house and, uh, then we're just going to kill everyone in it. And maybe, you know, the people in the, in the houses around there, maybe we'll just drop a drone bomb on them now, now that the cops are using drones and, uh, or robots. And, the, and then another parallel is that the states will, just like the police, the police will um, commit these horrible crimes and then never be held accountable for it. And then only in the most egregious cases will it actually um, become um, like a story. Well, that's what happens around the world, where the, the U.S. will drop bombs, kill hundreds of thousands of civilians collectively over all these past 15 years, and that's just the past 15 years because it goes back generations, but they'll do this. And it's only in the most egregious cases, like with the the bombing of the hospital in Kunduz in Afghanistan, 
where it actually becomes a story. And then they just do a little fake investigation. No one's held accountable. No one goes to jail. No one is charged with war crimes. Mm-hmm. And they just get away with everything. And not only do they get away with it, then they then they blame Russia for doing the same thing in Syria and expect like uh, war crimes tribunals to be set up against the against the Russians for for doing what the Americans are doing. Mm-hmm. It's just so. Either way you look at it, it's like uh, if you look at the police. Well, the the American uh, police of the world is like just taking the American police state to a whole another level. And looking at it from the other way, you've got the the world police in microcosm as the um, the just the domestic police in the United States. Yeah, it's very similar, um, and you can't help but wonder, you know, like why is that? And um, you know, I would argue that it's you know basically we have this culture of exceptionalism and um, you know lack of accountability when it comes to authority figures. Um, this is why, you know, child predators are frequently found in positions of power. You know, they're doctors, they're, uh, you know, coaches, you know, any sort of position that would grant them, you know, some sort of authority or prestige that would allow them to, uh, you know, escape from uh, charges of misconduct. And, you know, we see the same thing with the United States and how it behaves abroad. Um, they just, you know, we go around, we bomb whoever we want. And, you know, we kind of just demand that everyone else, you know, accepts it. And it's just getting to the point now where I'm, I'm hoping people are finally fed up and we're seeing more and more exposure of these kind of crimes. You know, there's websites and, and Twitter feeds that are dedicated to this kind of stuff. And they're filled every day with news stories. Um, there's one from Chicago, Illinois, where a 56-year-old man was being transferred during um, – a prison transfer and they stuffed a bunch of toilet paper down his throat and he died of suffocation. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, you know, how do you justify that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, the, the other horrible thing is that the system is self-reinforcing because when you have this culture of privilege and impunity, you attract those who find that, you know, you start getting the kinds of personalities, the psychopaths, the sociopaths that that would thrive. So the system is it's got this feedback loop that the more impunity you grant, the more people who will take advantage of that impunity become part of the system. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, you know, if you don't have a, a strong sense of self and, and what's right and what isn't right, you have a whole percentage of cops that are probably authoritarian followers who, you know, under different circumstances and a different culture uh, might be behaving very differently. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, they, they've they become um, unwittingly complicit in this, uh, in this abuse without even realizing that there, there could be a very different way to do their jobs. Well, Brent, any final yeah. thoughts before, uh, before we end the show? Um, Basically, I think we we need to have some sort of groundswell. Uh, you know, people need to realize what's happening, and people need to, you know, take a stand. Whether it's on social media or contacting their representatives. Um, basically, you know, everybody can do something. Um, and if it's just you know a tweet here and there, that's great. If it's call your local politician, that's awesome. Um, but the more of stuff like that we happen, it'll only be a matter of time until 
you know, the support for change will overcome the inertia that seems to have grips policing in America. And, and hopefully things will change. I mean, we can only wait and see. Great. Well, thanks, Brent. Um, and I hope, hope we see you again next week. So thanks, everyone, yeah, no for, thanks everyone Thank for tuning you, in. And uh, make sure to tune in on Friday for the Health and Wellness Show. And until then, uh, I guess we'll see you next week. Everyone take care. Be well, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye. And thanks again to Denise for calling in and for another great police roundup by Brent. And our chatters. 